hello, and thank you for checking out the Strange Tonic Podcast. This is the first one that we've managed to get up, and so far it's been a little more challenging to do so than I thought. Uh, The first attempt at it was almost three hours long and kind of completely directionless, so I deleted that. The second one was fairly good, however, I messed up the editing and it took me six weeks, so I just scrapped it. So we're hoping this third attempt will be where it's at. And for those of you, just to kind of get this out of the way, if you don't know me, which is going to be rare if you're listening to this recording, my name is Noel. I have a degree in political science from the University of Northern Colorado. I also studied a lot of music while I was there, as well as economics and history. I have worked, it's been a long time, but I've worked on communication teams for different uh, internships where I worked with business groups mainly. So in case you're wondering, who is this guy and what the heck is he talking about? I have, I guess, some background in politics, not a lot, not even as many much background if any of you on Facebook where my friends are listening to this as you do. So I don't fancy myself an expert, but I've got a little experience and I read up a fair amount and you know, what the heck, this is my blog. Uh, well, I'm hoping not just my blog, but our blog, because Michelle is doing a great job with it. And if any of you would also like to contribute, please hit me up on Twitter with a direct message at at strangetonic.com. I will also be doing my best to get a general inbox uh, email account set up for this site, which is, of course, the strangetonic.com. Before we begin, obviously, our hearts go out to anyone affected by Hurricane Harvey, even though we don't talk about it in the podcast. Uh, Donate what you can and make sure that, please make sure I should say, I don't want to tell you what to do, and please donate, I should also say, please donate what you can and please check out who you're donating to because people... There's just massive devastation. People are in need of help, but there's also you need to make sure that the money's getting to them in a fairly efficient and reliable way, which isn't always the case with charities, unfortunately. Next, I want to give a huge, huge, huge shout out to the guys from Pan Astral, who are a great Denver-based band and have allowed us to use their music during our podcast, which is just a tremendous gift. This, uh, the track that we're using this evening is Gulf of Mexico from their latest album, Suburban Blues, and I don't see any upcoming dates on their website right now, but I will mention them whenever we do recordings in the future. And also, please check out Pan Astral at panastral.com. You can find their music on iTunes, Bandcamp, Reverb Nation, basically all your typical sites for finding good music. And that, now we had out of the way, I think Michelle and I had a great conversation here. I was hoping to keep it to an hour. It went about two hours. I say um a fair amount. I curse more than I want, which I will try and curb going forward. But thank you for listening, and I think you'll enjoy. Hey, 
far it's not. Yeah. Well, we we'll just we'll just try to to bust through it then. So okay. <laughs> I'm sorry to have interrupted you. It's fine. <laughs> when you were trying to make a point, and I'm like, wait a second, what's going on? <laughs> We're so, good because it's not like the full sentence. It's just every now and then one word will get garbled. Just kind of a gr- uh, 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 uh. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like what did you just say? Yeah, but yeah, how should I respond? <laughs> we're uh, good though. Okay. All right. So let's just go back into it. So we we are recording right now, and with that, I think we'll okay. uh, get uh-huh. into it. And uh, so. For those of you that are listening for the first time, because although this is the third attempt at a recording, this will be the first one that hopefully will be posted online. This is the yes. Strange Tonic Podcast, which I messed up the, the second time. What what did I call it the second time? I forgot. Like, I strange Tonic, like, just, just mumbling words and stuff that didn't come out. <laughs> um, hosted by myself, Noel, who I've you know, you've listened to the intro by now, hopefully, and Michelle. And Michelle, tell the good people of you know, a bit about yourself, but your background. Sure. Well, my background is mainly in academics. I got my master's and undergraduate degree in history. So that's that's kind of my background. I specifically researched the Marshall Plan in post-World War II Germany. And uh, since then, I have not gotten a teaching job. So I'm working in the medical field now. Isn't history fun? <laughs> everybody continues to ask oh are you gonna teach i don't think so anymore (laughs) just uh have a real job with you know full-time uh full-time hours and benefits and security as opposed to being an adjunct for nine different classes and making you know twelve thousand dollars a year so i think i'm okay (laughs) i was gonna say if you're planning on doing college or k through 12 but yeah i mean yeah so yeah (laughs) college was the goal there but you know adjunct work just the way higher education has kind of shifted in the last few years a lot of uh universities in order to save money or pocket more money i guess uh however you want to look at it are transitioning out of the tenure track programs and mainly trying to get people to teach on an adjunct you know yeah almost like per per class basis and if you want to be negative about it you could call it almost uh you know, you're like volunteering your time, you're doing an internship, you're doing, uh, oh man, what do they call it? This is how out of touch I am, I should know better. When, uh, you know, if you're, say you're working to become like a welder or something like that, you have to spend X amount of time working underneath somebody else before you can be certified. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's and, and so that's who's teaching college classes out there right now are people who are basically doing it on a volunteer basis or an internship basis, or they have a PhD and you know a hundred thousand dollars in debt, and they're the ones getting the adjunct positions instead of us lowly master's students. It almost seems like it's that way with writing as well, where you know you have to put in your time, probably making no money as a blogger uh, if you want to catch on with a newspaper. Which or like... that's that's such a good, yeah, that's such a good comparison. Uh, it's or or just even out in the business world, uh, there's been a shift in uh, a lot of corporations to, you know, quit hiring employees and just farm it out to independent contractors. So I mean, it's, I think it's a trend like way beyond academics. It's mm-hmm. it's something that's been out there for a long while, um, especially leading up to and around the time of uh, the 
economic crash in 2008. So a lot of, think of it as independent contractor work. And I'm, I feel like I'm better off with my full-time job. So it reminds me of what Gary Johnson said when he was asked about the economy and, you know, was trying to make it sound like, you know, he had a good plan for doing stuff that didn't involve the government getting involved, which says he wants the Uberization of everything where, you know, they're, they're, oh, you know yeah. you're, you're, you're your own corporation. Everyone's their own right. LLC can take care of their own right. you know, health care. It's like, all right, I, I get that. However, I'm with you. Like, I have a friend who was trying to get me to strike out on my own because he was saying, oh, you're such a smart guy. You should be an entrepreneur because he says he earns, you know, six figures, you know, not a lot of money. Well, not like, sorry, it makes it sound like six figures. It doesn't mean anything, but <laughs> not like high six figures, kind of like middle low area and he's uh-huh. you know he's as old as i am and he's like, you're, you're a smart guy you can do it by yourself and you're you know <laughs> you're motivated it's like well yeah but you know i kind of do want to do pursuits like this like we're doing right now and mm-hmm. where i have time to do that and you know having a job that provides good benefits and you know, relatively stable pay is mm-hmm. it's nice and it's it's not the most thought-provoking job and but it, i also have time to sit around Oftentimes, just thinking about stuff to write about all day long. Sure. Yeah. And uh, particularly after I graduated with my master's degree, I truly did not pursue teaching positions quite as hard as I could have. And it, it's in part because I saw many of the friends that I graduated with who are like beyond intelligent, and I was lucky to have them as my cohorts. They struggled even harder than I did. And to see people of such integrity and intelligence and, you know, ingenuity on their own part, not find a teaching job for three years. And then I kind of got offered a different, a completely different track in, Mm -hmm. you know, the medical field. And I thought that looks a little bit better right now. So, you know, it's a, you know, it is one thing to kind of have that bootstrap mentality, but you know, can everybody pick themselves up by their bootstraps? Like it doesn't always work that way, no matter how hard you try or no matter how intelligent you are. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I think if you make choices that are right for yourself, um, education is a worthwhile pursuit. And I think in any capacity, even if you get a degree and you don't end up in that field, it took me three years to get to that point, like being like (laughs) more okay (laughs) with that. And maybe I'll go back and, uh, do PhD or law school or something like that. But for right now, I just need to be able to pay my bills and uh, feel like I can keep a roof over my head. So I am in the same boat, although I don't have a master's degree. Uh, I've been talking about <laughs> doing something you know, higher learning for a while. And for me, I, I had my credit wrecked by student loans because I mm. had the, uh, <laughs> I had plenty of opportunities to, get through college in four years with little debt and get out of college before the economy collapsed. But I kind of spent my time either pursuing music or stuff outside of school or just mm-hmm. working shitty you know, retail, retail jobs. jobs. <laughs> and when I finally got serious about school, and I wasn't really serious for about, I'd say, two and a half years, I was still working full-time, but I needed to get those student loans and I get out of college, and it's you know the worst of the worst as far as the job market goes. Where, yeah, you know, I was I did, first of all didn't know what I should get into, and you know everyone 
was telling me, oh, you should do sales. You're you're good at with people, and I'm, of course, you just when you do retail, you don't assume that you're good at it because you everyone not everyone, but you you have a <laughs> kind of a general negative outlook of people for a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but all the sales jobs were either like flat out scams, like one that my a good friend of mine fell for, where uh-huh. you essentially work for free for about you know three months. And then if you know, they decide that you're good enough, they cut bait, and the guy who you were reporting to, you're now him, and he moves up. So oh. it's like a pyramid scheme in job form. Wow. And you know, I, I, you know, without getting too much into it, <laughs> I went to this interview, and it was in this kind of like brand new, like thrown together office building, uh, not quite in Lodo, but like you're – you can see Coors Field from there, but it's, but it's not in really Lodo at all. It's not nice. Mm, yeah. uh, it probably is now. <laughs> it might be. It's all been gentrified and like yeah. tripled in price, but continue. Because <laughs> this was like se- six or seven years ago. Right. And, you know, I show up. And also, what should have been an instant red flag is most of the jobs that I wanted, they didn't call me back really ever. So I submitted my resume during my lunch break at Borders, uh, on my phone while sitting uh, in those like soft chairs that used to be like right by where all the cooking books and like sports history and stuff was. Mm-hmm. And I submit it. And then like, you know, about 45 minutes later, about towards the end of my lunch, my phone rings and they're calling to set up an interview. And I'm like, Oh great. We know when they're saying, what is you going to do it first? Next day I had off was like the following week. And so I drove down there, go into this office. There's nothing to mark what, the company is and I, I kept noticing that whenever the receptionist would answer the phone she just kept saying marketing without the name mm-hmm. of the company just marketing and you know I go into this guy's office who's you know probably late 30s early 40s dressed in you know what to a young person looks like a nice suit but looking back at it now it's like it's a cheap what's an expensive looking cheap suit and mm-hmm. while I'm talking about, you know, what I think he wants to hear in my interview, he's just, you know, scribbling on a piece of paper or, you know, playing with poker chips. It's not kind of paying attention. So I finish up and leave and think, oh, man, I bombed this thing. And sure enough, I get a call while I'm driving back to Greeley saying, we'd like to schedule a second interview with you. And, you know, all these things go in my head at this point going, something's not right here. red flag (laughs) red flag this is way too easy the guy didn't seem to care at all yeah and so like i can't remember the name of the company but like i typed it in and you know kept googling it and after a while one of the results that would suggest was whatever the company was in scam oh no and i looked it up and what i could have expected on my uh second interview was to be driving around with a supervisor and you're like, because I was asking during my interview, how it is that they make money? Because none of this made any sense to me. Because mm-hmm. it was, you know, oh, well, we do promotions for local sports teams. No, what you do is you go door to door and try and sell extra tickets that they bought in surplus. Or other oh items okay. like that. <laughs> so it's like, or- it's, it's more organized scalping? Somewhat. It's um, something like that. So what they'll do is they'll agree to do marketing for a company or for a sports team, and they, which they say is blue chip prospects or you know, full, or portfolio 
of clients. And oftentimes they won't get paid in money. They'll get paid in like coupons or tickets. And so you go and you sell these, you know, to, you know, obviously the discount. It's kind of scalping, but mostly it's you're, you're, you are marketing because you're trying to get more people to the, the event. You're trying to get more people to buy the product, to mm-hmm. be exposed to it. But, um, all the reviews were, yeah, you just follow this guy around. You go door to door selling stuff to people. And most people just you know, slam the door in your face. And a lot of times they say that you actually end up going to poorer areas. Which I was like, that's just awful. Yeah. And I called back immediately after I figured this out and declined. And just said, I didn't think this was the opportunity for me. But yeah, my buddy <laughs> ended up doing it and ended oh, up having no. <laughs> uh, his... Now, wife's uh, dad, who's an attorney, say, hey, if you don't pay him basically essentially for three months of labor, we're going to file a complaint. And so they paid out what you know, they thought was fair. <laughs> but it was like, oh, my gosh, because he, he had just got a college. Not the same, well, I guess this was about six months after I had done this. He just got a college. And it was the same way where he spent most of his uh, early college career not doing anything. And he was engaged and needed a job. And this one was, they were offering. So, yeah, mm-hmm. after that, it was jobs were selling insurance where it was 100% commission or wow. uh, one where basically they said you should sell all your policies to your family members except for the ones that you get during your trial period. They go to a different uh, agent after your trial period's up. So all these things that you've worked to open – go to somebody else and you have to start from start fresh again wow so it was that and this was before i think obama even started noticing that these loan repayments were the amounts they were asking was for too much because yeah you know after borders you know i wasn't making a lot of money borders anyways but uh you know here comes nelnet asking for six seven eight hundred dollars a month in you know repayment yeah. And I'm making that after taxes, and I'm working full time. <laughs> That's your entire takeaway yeah. for the month. And I so, remember those days for sure. Yeah. So I called them up and said, "Hey, I can't pay this. You know, I'll pay what I can." And they would say, "Well, it's not that much." And like I tell them how much I make, like, "Well, so you can cover it." I'm like, "Yeah," and uh, then not have anything <laughs> else for food or rent or you know, <laughs> gas or insurance or anything. And you know, just wrecked my credit and. So yeah. now what I'm worried about is with uh, DeVos and company running the Department of Education that right. you know, if anything goes wrong, that I'll default on these student loans. So I kind of want to get these paid off, the ones that I still have, before even considering yeah. any more. Right. That's, that's fair enough. It's, <laughs> uh, the awfulness that – and what I don't understand is – the fact that his administration is filled with so many of these types where you know, the DeVos family, or remember the Koch brothers network, they're yeah. billionaire donors that have funded the likes of uh, not so much Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz, I, did, I didn't realize this. I just read a book about it where Ted Cruz is a fam- uh, favorite of the Mercer family who really, really, yeah, they're the ones who backed Trump. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised by that. Yeah, I was too. 
I guess uh, that's why <laughs> it's weird. Conway was. He doesn't was... seem like he doesn't seem wackadoodle enough for the Mercers to have ever like <laughs> cared well, about him. I guess part of the reason they liked Bannon so much was his idea of let's burn everything to the goddamn ground and rebuild. So they yeah. didn't mind the fact that Cruz would you know not only screw over his own party, but screw over the whole country just for some name recognition because they mm. just could not get rid of Obamacare. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <laughs> it's like all of these, his cabinets filled with either, you know, flat out morons or, or dangerous people or just people that bought their way in and he's the drain the swamp yeah. candidate. Yeah. And just to expand off of that, I mean, Eric Prince, Related to Betsy DeVos, mm-hmm. you know, oh, sure, I'll run the war in Afghanistan for $10 billion a year. I I know, supposedly, he, like, drove up to Camp David and Mattis or somebody else with, you know, I don't know, some amount of brain power said, no, we're not taking that meeting. So thank God for that. But the fact that it even got that mm-hmm. far, let's turn this into a private war for a relative of Betsy DeVos who already got in a shit ton of trouble for bad things done by his corporation in yep. Iraq. Yeah, they like, they how, how was that crimes. even on the table? Yep, exactly. Like, how was that even, how did even, how did it even get to that point that he would just stroll up to Camp David saying, Hey, I'm here for my meeting. Well, according to, um, I just finished the audiobook of this cause I, I listened to a lot of audiobooks cause I spend so much time in my goddamn car. Yeah, uh, fair I enough. just finished uh, Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the... Oh, you did? What yeah. did you think? I've been wanting to read that. It's on my list. I thought it was good. I didn't realize that uh, the author, Joshua Green, I didn't know much about him, but he the reason he was able to get so much access is, for being a writer for The Atlantic, he's actually a believer Republican. And you, know, you just you don't realize... Because I had thought that... I'd seen Bannon interviewed a few times. Like, I saw him on uh, Bill Maher's show, which I'm not a big Bill Maher fan, but I saw him on there. And he seems not crazy. So you're mm. kind of going, where are these policies coming from? And the book kind of you know, expounds on it more where he doesn't, he might not himself be an actual racist. But he doesn't think that using race, like he actually thinks that um, when they use race to divide people, not only is it a win because it you know excites the base, he thinks it hurts Democrats because Democrats then look kind of uh, you know all high and mighty coming forth and making and that he thinks making race an issue or, and making identity politics a thing as where you know he thinks it's you know, it's a non-issue. Mm-hmm. And like, how how do you not see this? And you know, it's to what you know. The, apparently, what the Mercers like about him is he and Trump are very much the same in that it's the ends justify the means. Right. And, okay. Uh, I was thinking about that too, where you have all these people that, <clears throat> with the just reality television is everywhere. And have you ever seen this? Is, Sort of off topic, but not. Have you seen uh, I'm Still Here? It's that, um, it's a mockumentary that Casey Affleck directed. It stars Joaquin Phoenix as 
himself oh, gone I, nuts. I couldn't even think of it. I like the, the my brain was firing. I should know what this means, but no, I have not seen that. No. So what they wanted to do with that was they were so kind of miffed at how people watched reality television and thought it was real. So they wanted to make a movie about it where they mm-hmm. went so ridiculous that you think that I watched it and for like the first part you're going, Oh, maybe this is real. And they're doing such ridiculous things, but like people are still believing that it's, you know, reality. Right. And their point is if you don't believe that reality TV is as scripted as anything else, you're silly. Mm. But um, to tie this into politics, I guess, you know, back at UNC, I remember having a debate in, you know, it was lower level poli sci class with a classmate who I won't mention his name, um, who, I, as I got to know him, I actually really liked him. But while we were having this debate, he stuck his finger in my face. And. You know, not to sound like I could kick his ass because I'm taller than him, and I also realized later that he was a Marine, so he would have easily dispatched with me. Yeah. <laughs> but it really pissed me off, you know, apart from the fact that I am just that much taller than him, so I just kind of put my hand on top of his finger and lowered it. And what I noticed, the further I got along in political science classes, and you end up taking, I took two capstones for some reason. <laughs> People who, like, this guy was in one of them. Uh-huh. People... Even if you have disagreements, you don't belittle each other. You don't scream at each other. For the most part, you make fun of that stuff where you you might go, oh, you you believe this, and everyone just starts laughing. And I think because, you know, at that point you've read so much stuff, and you're all all fairly, as you're talking about in history, you're you're all pretty, you think you're all pretty high-functioning, you're all pretty high-flying, and you know more than just about anybody you talk to on the subject. Right. And so you're all very civil. And then, you know, it seems like, you know, a lot of people discovered politics after Obama was elected and they're acting like Sean Hannity on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And I kept telling him, like, no, this isn't how people actually discuss things. And I'm thinking, you know, well, this is reality television now. It's, you know, let's make, you know, kabuki theater out of everything. And that, you know, you see that in reality television where people will be like, oh, I was just playing a character. That's that's why I spit on somebody. It's like, no. <laughs> the ends don't justify the means. And especially because, you know, well, we should think about this. In all cases, we have to work with each other. And right. I don't care if, you know, if, if we're on television and you spit on me and then let her go, that was just for theater. Mm-hmm. No, I'm not an actor. Like, you know. Get into, actually go into acting if you want to do that, but that actually, I guess, takes some talent. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that was a weird tangent. No, I, I think it's an interesting point to bring up because in in an actual conversation with someone, you're not going to have somebody at least recognize or understand your perspective if you're so busy just telling them that they're wrong. Like, but like belittling them or calling them names or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. That's not having a discussion anymore. No, it's yelling at each other or anymore. I just, and I'm, I'm probably just not as guilty, but I certainly do this where I call it kind of just mindlessly screaming into the void of 
straw men or you know what you think mm-hmm. people who don't agree with you believe mm-hmm. and you know it's, it's because in a lot of cases we see who we believe are experts on television mm-hmm. doing this exact thing right. um one of it, it's awful because you know hannity is such just a dense just partisan i guess you i don't even know if you can call him a hack anymore is flack more of a better word? Just, okay. <laughs> or I think flunky might be a good word. Yeah. Okay. And he's interviewing of all people Bob Woodward, who <laughs> is a very proud Republican, at least as, as far as you know what he thinks actual conservatism stands for. He I don't think he's proud of this president, but he's he's a Republican mm-hmm. and he doesn't shy away from it, and he's. Woodward's just trying to describe what journalism as a function is. And Hannity is just, you know, he's not yelling so much at Woodward as just yelling at nothing hmm. about how, you know, the liberal journalism is bad and how Hannity himself isn't journalism or a journalist, even though he carries himself as one. And it's, mm-hmm. it's just so awful because... You have this guy who's well-respected in almost all circles. That's how he gets access to everybody. Just trying to give a basic lesson in what journalism should be. And I think he was defending um, some reporting that maybe he had done by somebody that was on the left that had been, I think, pointed out as being somewhat problematic. But he was saying it's you're supposed to get the facts as you can at the time. And oftentimes that leads to some mistakes, but it's not necessarily partisan-driven. It's someone trying to get facts, they get the best ones they can, and they just can't. And here comes Hannity screaming that, you know, they're not... (laughs) You know, it's the whole thing of, how could they... They didn't talk about this, and talk about your feelings, or talk about something that you made up? What is it? (laughs) I... I... It's... That's a really good thing to point out because I hadn't really thought of it in those terms. I don't really consume reality TV. I think the only reality TV shows I've ever watched are, you know, like the early cycles of America's Next Top Model. And, Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) and like, you know, I just, and I don't have a stomach for that kind of unnecessary drama. I don't, I've never understood the appeal of that where people fight just to fight. Mm-hmm. And uh, do horrible things to each other or say horrible things to each other just to get ratings. It literally makes my stomach churn. So that being brought into politics, I hadn't really thought of it that way. But this last, you know, the campaign cycle and the election cycle, I didn't watch any of the debates. Because that's exactly what it was going to be, was Trump just screaming at Hillary Clinton for no fucking reason and she's just talking wrong mm-hmm. no like i i don't have a stomach for that kind of unnecessary uh verbal abuse or just i don't know for for no other word that i can think of right now just drama well, it's just drama did you watch any of the uh primary debates nope so <laughs> I green... skipped those two, my friend. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't blame you. I only watched a few. There were too many of them. But Green in his book, even rightly... just hearing this, I was going to say, just even hearing the summaries. Oh yeah, made my stomach feel ill. <laughs> uh, 
you know, Green in his book even discusses that at one of the uh, uh, debates that was hosted by Fox News, it was clear that the Fox News, you know, quote unquote moderators had you know, they come there to take down Trump. They had graphics, they had pretty tough questions for him, and you know there was that, and people kind of saw what good television that was. And then the subsequent debates hosted by different networks. They were almost all trying to post questions that were designed to elicit responses that would provoke Trump um, mm. from the other candidates. And the only person who really kind of stepped away from it was Kasich, where like, they'd ask him a question and he would know it was loaded and he would just avoid it and you know answer something else. And that was well, and <laughs> how sad was that, by the way, that Kasich, who is uh, nowhere near you know, a moderate anything was the voice <laughs> yeah. of sanity and was trying to carry himself that way as well. Uh-huh. I found out later that he had the same, Oh man, I'm drawing blank the guy's name, the same campaign manager as, uh, uh, what's his name? I think he's a former governor of Utah, was ambassador to China under Obama for a bit and ran mm. for, he, you know, was a Not gonna GOP know hopeful that in 2012. Anywho, he, I remember at the time thinking, oh, this guy actually sounds somewhat reasonable, and then someone showed me his record, and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but he had the same campaign manager that apparently believes that the way to go forward is to, you know, have some sanity to your politics, to have some moderation, you know, to, yeah. you know Fox News hates hearing this, but to sound like a compassionate conservative as opposed to, I don't know what the hell Trump is in fact. Um, and that's the thing, like Trump <laughs> literally stands for nothing. He, I mean, he, I, I, he stands for nothing. So how can you really label him? But I mean, what, what is he trying to sound like? I guess like an angry conservative or a um, I don't conservative know. <laughs> or I don't, I don't know like I, what kind of terminology could be applied to that kind of hot mess he is. I also just finished another audio book. I, I burned through two last week. They're sh- relatively <laughs> nice. short. Um, yeah. I did listen to Jeff Flake's, uh, essentially his treatise of Barry Goldwater's yeah. of a conservative. And it's, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not bad. And like, I was actually kind of glad I listened to it because I didn't know much about Jeff Flake before that. Uh-huh. And, you know, my, one of the things he describes Trump as is basically a uh, infomercial on, you know, some late night cal- or cable television network where it's, you know, lose fe- like weight now with no effort, but while sleeping and like, or eating bacon. <laughs> it's just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everything at all times with you know, just unabashed you, you know this is just shit yeah <laughs> but that's what trump is um yeah. he you know everyone's gonna have access to health care that's the best health care it's gonna be just a fraction of the cost I, I just gave him a boston accent i do a terrible boston accent anyways <laughs> um and you know all of that and the only i can fix it it and that sounds good I guess this is where you know him being quote new to politics or maybe it's just yeah. that he's dense you, this is why you don't promise the moon because when you can't deliver irrational things that really aren't possible 
you know, people should hold you accountable, except right. that the people who you know bought this, you know, you know, magic weight loss pills offline online after watching his infomercial right. are blaming reality for them not losing weight as opposed to the fact that this is just garbage. Yeah. It, um, I recently heard an interview with uh, David Binder, who he runs his organization called the Denver, David Binder uh, Research Group or something, something like that. And uh, he he is a guy that can he and his organization will conduct phone polls and uh, do like focus study groups. Uh, so he's been hired by different like political organizations and campaigns to try and understand voters better. Like for, you know, just to summarize basically what he focuses on. And he did do a focus group on people who were the Obama Trump voters. So people who voted for Barack Obama in 2008 and or 2012, and then also voted for Donald Trump. And I'm sure it was a very small group. I don't, I don't know the actual numbers on it. But one of the things that this research organization was trying to figure out was, you know, not how many people did that, but why did they do that? Because, you know, from my mind and for a lot of other people's minds, how is that a logical next step? Like going from Barack Obama as the person you vote for in election to voting for Donald Trump shortly thereafter. And so what they found was that a lot of these voters were trying to vote for something different. They didn't see any type of discrepancy between voting for Barack Obama one one election cycle and then Donald Trump the next election cycle. It's that they were looking for something that stood out from the norm. So Obama spoke differently and talked about different ideas from John McCain or Mitt Romney. So he was the he was like the alternative candidate. And then in this last election, Trump with absolutely zero political experience, no matter what he said, was also the alternative, you know? And so even him, like, promising the moon, like, people were still voting because he wasn't saying the same type of stuff that Clinton was or the same type of stuff that other politicians had said or somebody trying to use, uh, you know, a more logical, moderate uh, perspective, like like Kasich, like he just brought up. Mm-hmm. Like they felt that, and that's the other thing is they felt that Hillary Clinton was not trustworthy. They just felt that way. And somehow Trump felt more trustworthy. What is so it's like, was that, uh, was... it's a vote. <laughs> it's a vote on the opposite and based on feeling as opposed to like policy and rhetoric. What did, was it, oh crap. It's, is Joe Walsh, the, I don't know what he's doing, like America's Most Wanted or something. I don't know what the fuck he is, but there's some guy who's online constantly railing against people who aren't Trump fans. And I guess whenever he says something dumb, he or whenever he says anything, really, because almost everything he tweets is dumb, people always make fun of him for not paying his child support because I guess he's really famous for that. Oh, God. Okay. Uh, anyways, so he posted a tweet that said, you know, Sure, Donald Trump lies, but he sounds honest. Like the way he says it is honest, so that you know that mm. he's lying because he's not trying to hide it. <laughs> and, he's speaking from his his lying heart. Yes. <laughs> so it, 
he, and it, it's yeah, not like nuanced. It's just he's speaking from his. Yeah, it's it's right. It's you know, off the cuff lies. Uh huh. Um, uh-huh. which, which is a lot better than like a logical moderate piece of truth. Well, it also completely misses the point, and also the whole thing that there in Trump's mind, you know, it's and justify the means, so there is no lies. It's you know, you know his mm. whole thing. If you know, when someone asked him, you said NATO wasn't you know was obsolete before, and he goes, "Well, that was before. Now it's fine." Right. Uh, but back to your point, though, about the uh, Obama, you know, Trump voters. I actually, I think uh, Green discusses that in that Bannon book. Uh, that's where I was like, that name sounds familiar. Oh, and does he? he? I didn't realize that. So he cited the the binder. I believe so, or or at least a similar study that showed similar okay. results. But it made me think there was, um, in, I think it was during the primary season this year that. NPR ran a series of stories where they went to usually swing states and talked to, you know, average voters. I don't know how they selected it. But one of the men that they talked to in Colorado who described himself as uh, semi-retired machinist who also is a uh, hobbyist musician. And I can't remember his name, but I've actually shared a stage with him before. He's a clarinet player. Who oh, at the time looked a lot like Santa, and <laughs> uh, just liked playing songs that were really fast. And but he usually played in the same key, anyways. And they're sort of talking with him, and you know, he nothing he said I thought was particularly you know enlightening as far as like oh I didn't realize people felt that way or like you know made him, he did he sounded reasonable. And when they asked him who he was voting for. He was saying he wasn't sure, but, you know, probably either Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. And it yeah, was for what you just said. Uh-huh. It was because people are they're going, I don't know what, you know what party I want. I'm not sure what my ideology is. I just know I don't want things to be the same. And of all people to figure this out, I mean, of all people, throughout the election season last year, I, listened to, I usually listen to NPR when I drive home when I'm not doing audiobooks. Okay. When I, when I, when I, just about get home. It's that ten minute segment with uh, it's usually E.J. Dion and uh, David Brooks, where they're just talking about this week in politics. And David Brooks, I don't know how, managed to just nail this nail on the head. Where you know, we're never talking about Hillary Clinton, and he, for the most part, he was generally more uh, had more positive things to say about Clinton than he did Trump. But he kept okay. saying that. You know, she's an establishment candidate in a change election. Mm. And I was, every yeah. time he, he said that, I didn't disagree with him. I was just going, crap, he's right. But yeah, <laughs> what can Shit. we do about he's it? right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and this, I, I don't say this with, uh, if people aren't familiar with, you know, my politics or whatnot. I don't say this to be anti-Hillary. I don't say this to be, in particular, pro-Bernie. It's just... I think, you know, we hopefully we are able to digest and understand correct statements that even when they go against what we are, are hoping will happen. Yeah. And it's it was just a truth, you know, unfortunately. And this is kind of going back to Flake's book where while he does sit there and say that, you know, in recent years, not even recent years, almost like recent year. He says that embracing this kind of politics of anger and resentment has, you know, really been done so as a 
strategic tactical thing by the Republicans. He too often you know says it's it goes to both parties, which it's not saying he's not correct. I'm just saying right. that when he does so, he kind of downplays his own party's faults in this. He also, I think, <laughs> I don't know how this is unfair, <laughs> but he somehow unfairly uh, ascribes too much of it to Trump himself and Trump's campaign. When you think back to, and I, I actually ordered Barry Goldwater's book because I, I never read it. But okay. It was my impression that I, I didn't think that Goldwater's book was a response to the Civil Rights Amendment. I thought its popularity was somewhat in response to rejection of the Civil Rights Movement. Okay. Where yeah. you had a bunch of people that were going, well, I don't know what I want, but hey, that sounds good. You know, less government intervention and, you know, states' rights. I'm cool mm-hmm. with that. Um, and I also think back to, there's a, film on, it used to be on Netflix about this, where it covered the, I don't know if it's like 1968 or 70 debates between uh, Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley. And obviously, uh, this is when Buckley is in the tank for Nixon hardcore. Okay. And also in Flake's book, he kind of talks about how Buckley is a champion of, you know, true conservatism and like conservative movement. But, you know, Here's Buckley trying to defend Nixon's clearly coded racial language, you know, law and order, like politics, stuff like that, the Southern strategy. Right, right, right. Yeah. So this isn't a you know this isn't a new thing. You go to no. I, I don't know as much about like I don't have an example handy for Reagan, but think of you know, Lee Atwater for Bush, who with his Willie Horton ad and. Uh, also, the whole th- thing of uh, he was right. I think not too long before his death, Atwater was recorded, and I won't use the actual language because it's extremely offensive and just wrong. He says uh-huh. that you know the reason they had to go with you know the Willie Horton ad and other similar things was you couldn't say the N word over and over and over because you know that people people would back off from that. People would go no no no, right. but you know when you insinuate. People are fine, and you know this is mm-hmm. kind of where I th- I think Flake's mm-hmm. right is. Uh, Clinton, for his part, basically did the same thing because the Democrats had no idea how to win elections, so there was Clinton's third way, which was kind of a, hey, we're sort of Democrats, but we're also conservatives for some reason. It's a third way, uh, right? And then, you know, well, the 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 tough on crime and revamping yes. welfare—that's all coded in racial language. Mm-hmm. Like that's all coded racism. Yeah. And it's you know, what Flake talked about is it's the you know, the politics of making things happen. <laughs> I mean, Clinton learned that when he was governor of Arkansas, where you know he claims to have these high-minded progressive ideals, but you know he'll do things that you know <laughs> you know one of them was he he when he he. He was governor of Arkansas for his first term that he lost before being reelected later. He instituted a gas tax, but because basically lobbyists for you know mainly the trucking industry said, "Well, we use a lot more of it, so you can't tax us more." End up taxing poor people more, and they're going, oh, yeah. "What is this?" And that's just kind of Clinton is. You know, I guess it works. And then obviously, uh, you know, Bush. George W. Bush, to his credit, he tried with that amnesty program, which was very, very unpopular with both parties. 
Yeah. Um, but you know, he they he used some scare tactics as well. And so to say that it's uh, he I think he used the word anomalous as far as Trump's election, as far as the anger goes. Uh, I use, you know, sort of the <laughs> this is how I described it with a friend of mine recently we were talking about it, where it seemed like with each subsequent election you had people like I mean, the Carl Rove types of the world going, all right, uh, how much, like, we've got this bottle of crazy. How much do we pour out this time? Mm. You shake it up and pour out a little more each time. When even in 2008, you had Carl Rove kind of telling McCain's campaign to chill out a little bit. Like, all right. <laughs> if Carl yeah. Rove is saying you're embracing the crazies <laughs> too much, I think you might be going a little crazy. <laughs> You need to step back. <laughs> you need to hit pause and reconsider things. <laughs> and, you know, which is what my friend and I were talking about is, you know, is this kind of weird, apart from, you know, how much of the rejection of Trump within the GOP kind that's kind of happening right now, how much of that is actual principled and how much is it people going, my gosh, this guy is really unpopular. <laughs> That's a really, really good question. And I feel like they're not too far apart, really. <laughs> like, there's a very gray, thin line, like, between those. They're the same, they're, you know, they're opposite sides of the same coin. Like, oh, shit. And it's either principled or, oh, he's crazy. Like, I feel like they're not really that separate. No. Like, and... they're, they're a lot closer <laughs> than it seems. <laughs> I think there's some too where like I think in Flake's case is they're starting to realize that you know the McConnells of the world who you know would put up with just about anything like as far as obstructionism or Trump for that matter even they're starting to realize uh-oh um we've kind of like with with when McConnell went against the Tea Party where they realized uh-oh uh, we tolerated these guys for far too long to try and get power. Yeah. And now they're wrestling power away from us. Uh-huh. Because I was, uh, <laughs> on all places, I posted this in response to someone essentially saying that, oh, you know, well, the Democrats win the House and Senate back in 2018. I said I found that unlikely because I was guessing um, in cases where Republicans are really uh, more well, the Republicans who I think are more in jeopardy are the ones that are in jeopardy of being primaried out f by uh, people like from the Freedom Caucus or people huh. that who you know, where hmm, and, oh, this is also going to get to as far as people talking about and just liking how Trump sounded. Uh, I've got a friend who another UNC alum, and he's an attorney. He, he's he's very smart. He's very funny, and he's very thoughtful, but. I was trying to ask him because he voted for Trump and I was like, because at first I thought he was joking when he kept posting all this pro Trump stuff on Facebook. I'm like, Oh, he's just trolling. Oh God, he's serious. But you know, he was just saying that he was looking forward to having a president or a Republican who wasn't, uh, I don't want to use his word because it's not, it makes him sound bad. Uh, who w was strong, who wasn't weak, who wasn't, you know, didn't sound like he, you know, learned all of his sayings in a focus group. And he was yeah. He was going to come in there and he was going to bend people to his will. 
you know, he wasn't going to sit there and, you know, t- you know basically, you know, turn his back because, you know, he got scared. Like, no matter how many times you tell him, this is not a tough man. This is a weak man trying to project toughness because he's so weak. Yeah. And right. it's... <laughs> also, how considerate of you to try and protect your friend? <laughs> Like trimming down his own language. <laughs> well, it was, you know, an, <laughs> it was a Facebook conversation, and I don't want to. Yeah. It wasn't that offensive. Like I'll say worse things on here, but I also don't want to reveal that stuff. Where, uh, yeah, fair yeah. enough. <laughs> it just doesn't. Seem no, right. I understand it. I just, I just thought that was a very, uh, very diplomatic and very considerate. So <laughs> you're not just gonna. Just air all the all of the dirty laundry. We all have dirty laundry, so it's true. <laughs> yeah, I don't want people going. Well, you said this. Yeah, that's right, I did. Crap. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This, I guess, I don't have this on the agenda, but this kind of leads me to something else I was thinking about and was having conversations uh-huh. with friends about this this week. Where I've got conservative friends who want me to tell them. That Donald Trump is neither Donald Trump and white supremacists are neither representative, uh, or sorry, representative of neither the uh, conservative movement nor Republicans, which I agree with. But then a couple of them went on to tell me why Black Lives Matter isn't racist or isn't a terrorist group because there are a few assholes out there within the movement. Okay. I tried explaining, but the thing, it still makes my head hurt that I'm being asked, and I think fairly, not to generalize, but then being told why it's okay, like, then being asked to affirm that it's, they're okay to generalize with groups that they disagree with. Right. But don't you, don't, <laughs> don't, don't generalize anybody else. Don't generalize anybody that I might fall into as a category. <sighs> and- yeah, that... I mean, asking why yeah. white lives matter isn't r- no. racist, which I suppose in and of itself, it's not necessarily, depending on how you, you know, how you use it, isn't necessarily yeah. standing by itself racist. But I was telling my friend who said this, that it's extremely misguided and misses the point. And that, you know, if you actually read about people who are, active in Black Lives Matter, they are they are saying all lives matter, but they're saying at the moment, what was, I have a, a former coworker and friend who was talking about it, where basically you're saying that all houses are matter, and all they're asking for is to kind of maybe send the fire department to the houses that are on fire. Oh, that's a really, really good analogy. <laughs> yeah, because it's like to ask or to say... That, you know, to or I guess to try to negate the Black Lives Matter movement or, you know, replace it with All Lives Matter or, you know, to be even more incendiary, Blue Lives Matter mm-hmm. as opposed to Black Lives. Yeah, I feel like that's that's part of the, the system of privilege that most people don't recognize because there's plenty of people in this country who are white and don't feel like they're better off or treated any better than anybody of color. But that's because they're part of the privilege that allows them to say that. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's a it's a, a total misunderstanding of how privilege works, like economic privilege and racial privilege, and they're both tied together. They both go hand in hand. But yeah, that's really to say, I like I'm 
I don't I don't know where I was going with that, but I do like the the houses that are on fire. Well, I, I it's think... like, well, yours yours <laughs> isn't on fire because you are white. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> and, uh, I think... to, cry, to to like step over the boundary of a, of a coherent analogy. Yours is not on fire because you are white because you are privileged. <laughs> I think maybe where you're going with this is that. Um... The fact that you're able to, you know, we're able to come forward and say, well, you know, you know, I don't see, you know, all lives matter. Like, yeah, I, I haven't had any problems with it, but, you know, look at me. I'm doing just fine. And this yeah. is, I don't want to mention her name because I can't pronounce her name correctly. There is a, uh, <laughs> okay. I'll, maybe I'll post something on the blog that has a link to her, her actual uh, webpage because she's a very good writer and she's based in Seattle, she, I don't know how widespread this got recently, but she drew the ire of uh, a lot of social media, uh, I don't know what you'd call them, the people who call people snowflakes and say they're triggered, but they're the ones that are always offended. Um, yeah, I, I, so just to interject, I actually had my parents do that last week. <laughs> I love my parents, and but we were. Ha- I was trying to have a rational discussion about Confederate statues, and my dad immediately started screaming about snowflakes. I was like, "Oh, it is real. It's not just." Oh, yeah, on I had TV. someone call me that. It is a real thing. One time to my face, and like, I don't usually get very animated. Like, I'm typically when I have conversations with people. This is how, how I'm talking right now. Is you know, even if someone says something that makes me mad or offends me. I'm more likely, if I get pissed, uh-huh. I'm more likely to stop talking. I don't actually, like, yell yeah. or, like, even, like, do anything else. So, you know, someone came in and said something just really stupid. And then I just kind of, like, said, well, actually, this is probably, I see I see what you you think, but here's the case, and this is what you, you know, <laughs> what you probably should be saying. And he did the, you know, oh, sorry, should have given you a trigger warning, snowflake. And... Oh, Usually when I hear okay. that anymore, I think that they're being like, you know, ironic. <laughs> because how could you not be? <laughs> but No, I'm not, but you are. <laughs> so she's a yeah, she's a great writer and Thanks. she I don't I said I'm not sure how widespread this was, but on Twitter she posted about traveling across the country and stopping in a cracker barrel restaurant and just feel like getting the sense that she just was being looked at because she was black and just not feeling Mm -hmm. comfortable. And Mm -hmm. people took that to mean that like (laughs) people were coming to Cracker Barrel's defense, which she wasn't insulting (laughs) Cracker Barrel, Cracker Barrel or calling Cracker Barrel (laughs) racist. She was just saying that's where she was. And Mm -hmm. then like she's posting Facebook messages she's she's getting or Twitter messages where they're just, oops. Uh, (laughs) Well, I just got an email. Um, and so she's posting this stuff. And, like, they're just these vile, just racist responses that, you know, I'm not racist. But like, or basically, how dare you call people racist and then use a racist term to refer to her? Like, huh? Hmm. But That doesn't even make sense. A lot of times when she posts stuff where it's, you know, racial because she, she writes about the politics of race mm-hmm. and just her experience as a black woman in America – white people will chime in to tell her how she should say things because it, you know, either yeah. it offends their sensibilities or she doesn't realize that um, 
you know, all white people are like that. It's like, and the irony there is that we're demanding that she understand our experience uh -huh. when talking about her own. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I actually posted a response sarcastically saying that and got a bunch of likes before someone responded, I think not realizing I was being sarcastic and calling me out and then deleting yeah. my post. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> which is true. I didn't put like the little, I think people like to put like an S or something to signify sarcasm online now. I thought it was fairly mm, obvious because okay. I think I just put something like, as a white man living in this country, I feel that you have to respect my emotions before you post about your own. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> go ahead. I was just going to say, well, this is kind of different, but I, you know, it's funny to watch people online ask why it is that they can't write about race and you know, kind of racial tension and why only black people can, <laughs> or why people don't care about their opinions. Mm. Like, <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Um, hmm. About that. Yeah. I, uh, heard an interview with the actress uh tracy ellis ross do you know who she is she's a uh, she's on the tv show blackish i after this conversation i sound stupid show? no i was gonna say i sound uh. dumb for not watching it but <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a really brilliant show it's, well, the... it's i mean just like bottom line one of the funniest tv shows i've seen in, in ages but it, but anyways i i really like tracy ellis ross she seems you know she's kind of a great figure and i follow her on, on instagram and i just i just think she's delightful but she did this great interview on a podcast um pod save the people and she had she had mentioned uh the phrase um stay in your own lane mm-hmm and how how close that is to stay in your place mm -hmm. and so you talking about this you know black woman making a comment about i just felt funny here and everybody telling her that she needs to say stuff about race differently when they're <laughs> all white people is that it's stay in your lane mm -hmm. stay in your place you don't know what you're talking about because not all white people are racist and it's <laughs> that's that's her experience. <laughs> like, how can you tell her that her her observations of the world around her have no validity? It's because obviously that's not your experience because you're not black, mm -hmm. you know. And it's, yeah. um, I guess I've kind of had two points here where a while back on this must have been something last fall, maybe last summer, I posted uh -huh. a link to an Economist article. Or I guess I think it was an opinion piece. Where it said the flip side to, like, basically rugged individualism is not flip side, but it, you know what comes with it is vanity, and you see it now mm. where okay. you know if something goes wrong, we all like I think it's, when I say we, I mean I really mean we as in my fellow white men with uh, middle class upbringings, we always want to jump in and talk about our own experience growing up, and you know I wouldn't do that because listen to me, like as if that has mm. anything to do with anything at all like yeah like i'm why am i speaking about stuff that i mean not not and it's almost like you're doing what you're saying like staying in your lane it's you know why do i have to jump in and tell someone else my experience rather than just listening to theirs right and uh nothing too is oh no i forgot where i was going with this uh <laughs> thud uh, let me let me 
you can think on it and I'll just kind of interject okay. here and we can cut the stuff out if you want. But like when I was talking to my parents, like the Confederate statue thing, it really, really upset me. And I, I think it's because like I had both parents kind of like, like going yeah. at me. And so, you know, if I was having a conversation with somebody else, I could have been just like, okay, that's fine. Let me walk away. But I got really, really upset. And then the next day, my dad, <laughs> you know, he, he he knew he got a little heated more than he should have when I was just talk about stuff. I wasn't trying to uh, be that provocative and like turn it into a fight. I said that was certainly not my intention. So I did end up walking away from it. But anyways, the next day he was telling me stories about how he grew up and, you know, why he's nonviolent and, you know, protesters shouldn't, you know, be violent. It doesn't matter who you are you know, you know, violence on all sides, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I was standing there thinking like, we're still not having a conversation, dad. I'm, <laughs> I'm just being forced to listen. And that's what I was trying to do the night before was listen and speak. But, you know, that's kind of a, that's kind of a tough realization when you think you're having an, an open dialogue and then it's like, no, I'm the one that, has the opinions and the experiences and mm -hmm, you should listen exactly. to me, you know? And so I was like, okay, thanks dad. <laughs> like there's nowhere to go from there. So. Yeah. That's something I've gotten oddly, I guess ironically better about it as I've gotten older, but what used to drive me even more nuts than it does now is in you know, talking to people, I'm sure that you've run into this, especially since you have an actual advanced degree in history where I talked a little about politics or political history or history for that matter. And yeah. they'd go, usually in political stuff, they go, you just don't get it. I'm like, what do you mean I don't get it? You're not old enough. I'm like, oh, okay. So your anecdotal <laughs> experience and whatever in examples <laughs> from your own perspective are more important than the things that I've read about in books. Or you're your Warway. anachronistic perspective yeah. 44 decades ago is better than mine. Okay. Which don't get me wrong. I value, you know, hearing about experiences. I, I do. Of course. It's just yes. that um, maybe this is where I was going. I didn't think I was going here, but um, <laughs> another audiobook I just finished, which I, uh, my dad started reading this when he was out here. He visited last, or I guess two weekends ago now, um, which is uh, The Death of Expertise, which I, even people right now, if they're listening, there is a book review up on the blog, which I read about this, I think, a couple weeks ago. And, you know, Tom Nichols is an actual academic who you mm -hmm. know, has worked on nuclear weapons policies and stuff like that. And, you know, he's talking about how, you know, he thinks it's even bad for you know, people will ask him questions about things that aren't in his area of expertise. And he'll go talk to this person. And with the you know, internet, and I think especially, you know, television and everything now, we all think we're experts on everything. Yeah. And he talks about... A nation about, of pundits. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so everyone has to... And not only that, like, he kind of... And I think it's somewhat funny, but I think maybe he might have something going on. Maybe it's just being a college professor, but he seems to have this disdain for millennials. And like... Oh, okay. You know, that... <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I couldn't believe that I'm technically a millennial, and I'm 34. Like, uh, well, and I, you, you are, yeah. I, know. And I, I just turned 30. <laughs> we are, but I don't. I I find myself constantly trying to defend the millennial generation because it, like I said, it just feels like we're always being attacked, and it's like, well, we're living in the world the baby boomer set up. So yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, that's what I usually I can't do. Help is that. I try not to like actually. <laughs> Uh, you know, attack other generations, but if people come out and then start attacking, uh, if they start attacking millennials, I'll go, A, a lot of these problems weren't created by the millennials themselves, they're created by the, the parents, so, um, I don't know if your parents are, my my parents are technically baby boomers, so, my, my dad yes. always goes, yeah, we kind of fuck stuff up, which, oh no, <laughs> I was trying to use Oh my this. gosh, mom says the exact <laughs> same thing, she- uh-oh. She's like, we're your generation. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. Can I get that on tape? Can I please get that on tape? <laughs> My grandmother, who passed away in 2001, at one point, like, we're sitting around a table, just my sister and I, mm-hmm. and um, my dad's parents were, they, well, my grandfather was a, was a salesman, but he had, sold to auto manufacturers so they were kind of pro-union democrats and i was from my grandma okay. who i i generally thought that was apolitical um saying oh all these programs like uh you know social security and stuff they sure are nice but i don't know how the hell you guys are gonna pay for them referring to my sister and wow <laughs> and but I don't, I don't even think that's fair because i i think uh you know, as we've figured out that Social Security isn't in trouble. No. It's, uh, no. you know, I think, uh, this is kind of off subject here, but I think most, where a lot of conservatives don't get is that even those of us that vote left, we're not in favor of an expanded government necessarily, and I think we are almost all in favor of more efficient governance and you know, less government spending, but we don't have necessarily faith in, say, the Koch brothers. Anyways... Um, <laughs> But yeah, yeah like, I know, I know, I don't. <laughs> the whole uh, you know blaming millennials and, and baby boomers, uh, you know, fucking things up. Where you know, that's yeah. why like, I try not to engage in it because in every everything has everyone has their faults. Like I think this uh, blaming blaming millennials for helicopter parents. How is that a thing? Mm-hmm. You can't blame a child for how you raised them. Yeah. Excuse me. <laughs> A quiet yeah. burp there. Um, but in Nichols' book, he I, this kind of ties into what we we're talking about early, uh, I guess at the very beginning of the recording, where he talks about just many a lot of things that he thinks have added up to where we are today as far as the death of expertise, and that is, and I think he's right. And I hate to say it, but at least with undergraduate college education, it's been watered down so much at this point that having a bachelor's degree at this point is akin to having a high school education as far as like what it used to be say like 40 years ago. Yeah. And you know he's not saying that <clears throat> you know that's because anyone's any smarter or less smart than they were before, but that like you know what you were talking about where the model has changed where colleges now it's about getting butts in the seats and getting as much like enrollment as possible and making money. Yep. 
as opposed to mm-hmm. actually learning. And mm-hmm. so I was uh, thinking about this while I was listening to that and talking about how a lot of students who maybe on their merits shouldn't have been admitted to college got into what are known as, like what he was saying shouldn't be even universities. I'm like, yeah, it's, he's probably talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I kind of goofed off in high school. But yeah, I mean, there's that and helicopter parents. The uh, he was talking about too the phenomena of the internet where we should be able to like we we have access to so much knowledge that we didn't have before. Like he was talking about how you know in thirty forty years ago, actually hell even twenty years ago, for the most part, only. You know, academics at the best institutions had access to certain publications and periodicals yeah. and stuff in these great libraries. Now it's almost all a click away. But instead of doing that, we're going online and going on Fox News or going down the rabbit hole that is uh, another term that I hate now because I think that even when it's used ironically, it just makes me sick. Fake news. Yeah, because people people are using it for stuff yeah. that is real news. Like, no, and they're they're not being, and they're not being sarcastic. It's like, <laughs> so whenever anyone is anymore, I'm like, stop it. Like, there's yeah. no humor there. Knock it off. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. It's like sickening. To to springboard off of your uh, point about you know academic journals and. You know, their status and now it's only being a click away and 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 uh, things like that it's academic academics and knowledge and study of any kind works in you know in the way we would think of you know actual scientists running experiments it's that the way knowledge is facilitated but also protected from the fringes is from um, the terminology was is gatekeeper <laughs> and that word is used in a lot of different ways, but that's kind of the same thing in academics and it has its benefits and its drawbacks. Like, you know, a lot of gatekeepers don't like uh, or didn't like progressive studies of feminism and cultural studies and social history back in the sixties and seventies, but that was still pushed against. And now history, uh, you know, at least, you know, me speaking from my experience in grad school is history is expanded to be more inclusive than it used to be. There was backlash against that. You know, history was always written by the winners and it had a very specific perspective and it was always about politics. And now we have things like social history and feminist history and racial history, economic history. I mean, the list is like, you know, it's, it's an endless list, but that's, but that's because people were willing to fight about it like go back and forth and have an actual intellectual discussion about it um now that there's not that dialogue anymore and i agree with you like we are getting our our news just off the computer off the phone we get it off of facebook but we're getting it from our same circle of friends that have all the same ideas as us Mm -hmm. and we're not getting that that pushback in a constructive way from people who might disagree with us or people who are experts in a slightly different field and might give us a, a, a different way to think about things. And so we're just going round and round in our little circles, everybody always agreeing with each other. Or like, you know, if you, 
if you go online and you read an academic article and you sit there and read it alone, oh, I understand that. Or, oh, I disagree with it to disagree with you. Like Mm -hmm. you're just in your own little bubble facilitating what you think is in uh, some form of education or or enlightenment. And And it very well may be like a lot of people are smart and a lot of people can think for themselves, but the way knowledge and and, you know, constructive criticism goes, I think it's beneficial to have those other people fighting back and forth with you. And we're not getting that same kind of thing. No, no, I Facebook and checking what our friend who agrees with us on everything posted from some from something else or all of our friends who also watch Fox News. If we're just posting all the same kind of crap, we're not getting any actual feedback. And then same thing like in colleges, like if things are watered down and you don't have a network of actual experts in their field, where is education going? I, I'm talking about like too many things all at once here. But... It's okay. I, I, uh, <laughs> you're talking to the master. Of, well, not a master. That's I think it's overstating my skills. <laughs> but no, I agree. Um, but you dabble. You dabble exactly. in multiple subjects, right? Uh, <laughs> you, you dabble. I'm taking that from one of my grad cohorts. But yes, you, you dabble. So... <laughs> Um, no, it's, I think it's very, very true. Uh, and that's apart from, you know, reading a couple of different books where they talk about adjusting your media diet, what, you know, I've been, uh-huh. I think I've kind of gone through some phases since Trump's been elected where, you know, at first you're like, I'm going to fight this and tooth and nail, like, this is ridiculous to going, okay, maybe you are going to fight this, but how are you going to do that? And one of the ways you certainly can't do it, although, and I think this is an area where I've, I've still been trying to figure it out. Um, and now I'm getting off on several tangents. To your point about you know, not being challenged, sometime it must have been last spring, or sorry, last spring, uh, spring of 2016, I was having a uh, another Facebook conversation with a friend of mine, and I think I had made some offhand comment about you know, I was I've been critical of Hillary Clinton, but I think I was saying that it wasn't based off of bias or sexism, and uh-huh. she was kind of like, "No, it is," and I was yeah. honestly pissed, and was like, <laughs> "Beverly, you know what you're talking about." And then I asked <laughs> another friend who I also respect about you know respect in general, but you know certainly respect her opinion as far as that goes, and she said, "Yeah." And, <laughs> So, yeah. like, at this point, I want to be angry, but then I'm going, I know they're right. Like, yeah. <laughs> I know I've been blinded by my own you know, opinion of myself, I guess, at this point. And, you know, I after I calmed down and was like, okay, you know, and then kind of realized, oh, now I see why. And now I see why. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. And it wasn't that anything I said was overtly sexist. It was that I was being critical because of, you know, kind of, I guess, unconscious bias on my own part. Mm, yeah. And I later had this conversation with my mom, who until recently has, as far as I remember, has been fairly apolitical. In fact, I think she called herself, uh, oh, what's the, oh, man, <laughs> getting late. I can't remember words. <laughs> uh, words are hard. <laughs> Oh, apathetic. And so she just didn't keep up. At the same time, she didn't complain because, in her mind, she wasn't doing anything. So why she she shouldn't complain? 
And so she was it, do you think part of it was she didn't feel like she was being affected by it either? Um, probably. She Okay. It's funny to talk to her now because I guess when I was a baby, she carried me around on her back and campaigned for Ron Paul. Oh wow. So for a while she had been libertarian, but now that she like has gotten older and talks to a son who's got a degree in political science and still reads up on it, yeah. kind of goes, why was I ever libertarian? Oh, yeah. And, um, but, you know, so she was kind of pro-Bernie for a while mm-hmm. and was mm-hmm. not happy when I was, uh, I guess it's more of like my centrist streak, which people are going to hate me for saying, but I was never really pro-Bernie. I like some of his ideas, yeah. but like, no, like, I think we're, you don't want to go too far in the other direction where you're growing government to fix problems that should, that it probably could be fixed without government in some cases. Anywho, and so I'm having this conversation with her on the phone and telling her about, like, my, uh, for lack of a better term, come to Jesus moment as far as being, <laughs> like, figuring out that I had more bias as far as against women than I thought. And, she didn't say anything uh-huh. at the time. And then like a few phone conversations later, this must have been months later, was going, oh my gosh, I didn't realize I had some of those same biases as well, which she said was even worse because she's like, you don't think about that as a woman, which I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't want to say that that's the case, just that was her statement. Um, but just the stuff where, you know, how do we... This is back to what I was trying to talk about before. I'm trying to read up more on conservatives, trying to see what people who don't maybe aren't getting as much traction in the media because they're not crazy enough. Like that's people always yeah. ask me why I, I despise CNN, like it, because it's just yelling. That's all it is. It's yeah, entertainment. It's, I know. it's terrible. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Yeah, I would I agree with you on that. Hmm. I would agree with you on oh, that. I don't. I thought you were saying I, you don't agree with me on that. I was like, what? Oh, no. no. Uh, CNN, uh, I am not a consumer of CNN. So. I don't watch cable news <laughs> to begin with. But, and, uh... like, even if, if I, <laughs> well, I don't either. The only cable news I do consume is the podcast version of Rachel Baddow's yeah. show. <laughs> That's how I start my days. I love Rachel. I, you know, I'm sure that I've got problems from that too. But, well, podcasts, uh, though, like, I mean, we're in almost up to an hour and 20 minutes. Like, you have, there's more time to expound on things and just kind of unpack stuff. As opposed to broadcast it, well, television where you've got like five minute segments. Well, and see, that's why that I, I guess that would be my defense of Rachel Maddow is like it's um it, it's it's literally the audio version of her show. Oh, okay. So it's still that's... the show, but it's I'm obviously just listening to the audio. I'm not watching the TV. Yeah. Um but she but she goes against the grain and you know, her first her A block will be like 23 minutes or 17 minutes or something and she pulls in a lot of history so i think i think that's why i've got you know a little bit of a little bit of a crush on rachel maddow (laughs) (laughs) i'm I'm not Um, saying anything against rachel maddow i was just saying i don't watch cable no no no. but as but as far as like my consumption of like cable news that's i i think that's about the only one that i really pay attention to is just her show because you're right i mean so much of it is you know, sensationalized. And I do think there are some very intelligent people with a lot to say, but I'm not, I'm, I'm finding that I would rather listen to an interview with that person as opposed to like their show. Cause their show is about ratings and it is about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, 
I, I, I hate this word sensationalizing um, because it's basically what a lot of news is. I, I don't know. I don't even know where I want to go with that. I just hate that word. Um, but, you know, I, I find a lot of people on those shows to be far more interesting and more intelligent and more thoughtful mm-hmm. when they sit down and do an interview with somebody else as opposed to like watching their show. Cause the show is, is going to be the runaround like so many other things. Well, and even does, if, do you, does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say like, and even in some cases where you might have like someone who's not even like a host, but say a contributor, yeah. like, I don't agree with him, but when I've seen extended interviews or, Extend, like things that are he's written that are longer, yeah. I find myself generally drawn into what uh, Charlie Krauthammer has to say. Like, like okay, okay you, you are you are intelligent, you are thoughtful. I might not agree with what you're saying, but you know this isn't like a you know five minute like segment that you have to talk about something, and then like that's so true. That's all I can judge you on is that. Well, and and so many like a lot of those segments too are even shorter. They're like two and a half minutes. mm Hmm. Yeah, that's true. How are you supposed to get anything out of that? Especially if they have like two or three panelists on. It's just, yeah. They're all jockeying <laughs> And they're for all time. screaming at each other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so that's kind of, you know, I guess the past uh, maybe two, three weeks for me have been trying to read. And then I, I, I don't have this. In, I, this will be an ongoing thing for me is how do you. And then I feel bad that I write something that insults a. Uh, Lindsey Graham, but I think he had it coming. Um, <laughs> how do you, like, how do I, I should say, not not use a pejorative, but how do I actually find a way to speak to not only conservatives, Republicans, without, you know, just you know, trying to somehow attach, you know, Trump to them as an anchor on their neck? But how do I speak to people that may have voted to Trump for Trump and go, no, like, I get you. Like, I understand. But still say like, that you're wrong when they, when they are wrong. And you yeah. know, when, you know, as you said, like, first off, with the conservative uh, in response to you know, saying that, well, we're going to tear down all the statues. As we, you know, oh, as I said God. before. It wasn't about the statues, but if you want to go yeah. there, we can talk history. But you know, <laughs> I don't understand. How about yes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm sorry. Keep <laughs> keep uh, going. Because <laughs> even then, like you know, I, I was actually having a conversation, and I don't have a degree in history, or unless two of them, and someone was asking me, "Oh, you're fine with the uh, turn down statues in Washington and Jefferson?" I was like, okay, let's unpack this here. <laughs> There's a lot to <laughs> yeah. go through. You know, not trying to like you know, say it's okay for anyone to own slaves. I'm not cool with anyone owning people as property. Doesn't yeah. matter. I'm not going to go with a victim of their time thing. And the fact that you know they didn't really actually set anything in motion to get rid of it is reprehensible. Like, yeah, no matter where you come from. However, you look at those two. They did not go to war to actively yeah. protect the institution of slavery. Of slavery, yes, and that's. I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I heard an interview with I, I can't even remember who it was. 
I just, you know, you listen to like nine podcasts and you can't remember like jack shit. But anyways, it was, it was, um, somebody within the history community, I believe. And they kind of had a same, the similar thing. Like if you're talking about history and memory, you know, history is like what really happened and our interpretation and understanding of it. And memory is something slightly different. Mm -hmm. And memory is, is what we, is the component that it goes along with things like statues and monuments. It's emotional. What of the history are you trying to remember? What of the history are you trying to celebrate? You know, there, there's different questions that can go along with that. And, you know, if you think about George Washington, you think father of the country helped us win the revolutionary war against the British empire. You know, he was a very good president. He did all of the, you know, you think of other things. You don't think slave owner, Mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson, same thing. Declaration of Independence, another good president. He did X, Y, and Z. There's all these other things. You don't automatically think like slave raper. You mm-hmm. know, it's like, <laughs> what did Stonewall Jackson do? He fought for the Confederacy, treason against the United States government. What do you think of Robert E. Lee, Confederate general? who fought to keep the institution of slavery. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's it's talking about almost like what's the bigger memory of this figure? Yeah. What what of this figure can we draw out that is to be celebrated? And that's what we want to put a monument up to. And that's what we want to remember. It's like, why don't we have any statues of slaves? Just now, like just in the last couple of decades, we've started having organizations and civil rights movements, um, just putting markers down. This center of town was a slave market Mm -hmm. for over 200 years. That's what happened here. But it's a placard next to a Confederate general. It's like, what? (laughs) How how does that work? And there's many other countries uh, in the Western Hemisphere in particular that do have the statues that commemorate the people who were, who suffered and died under the system of slavery. They're not putting it, they don't put up statues to remember the keep the people that kept them enslaved. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, what are, what are, what are out of our history? Do we want to remember? And like, I'm a big, I'm a big um, fan of Brian Stevenson and the equal justice initiative and the work that they do. And one of the, uh, projects they they've been working on for several years and it's a, a ongoing project but they want to put a historical marker to every known location of a of a lynching that happened after the civil war mm-hmm. you i was know? actually just gonna i say i heard this on npr it was i i thought this was very interesting mm-hmm. yeah and you know and there were thousands oh yeah and there were there's these are human beings whose lives were lost at the hand of white supremacy in the KKK who set up the Confederate statues and who took those moments and those memories and those figures from the past to keep black people suppressed. (laughs) Like it wasn't even about commemorating Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson or anybody. It was about making sure minorities stayed in their place. That's literally what these statues were mm-hmm. put up for. So that's how mem- memory can fluctuate because now <laughs> those statues with a very specific purpose, people are applying some other 
context to them, a context that was never there in the first place. No, um, I, I would say what's more is, uh, I mean, if you're looking at a statue of Robert E. Lee and you're saying it's about history, okay, mm -hmm. but for a fair amount of people, especially you know, a lot of those in the South, and I'm not trying to be... Uh, you know, degrade or degrade anybody or anything like that, but um, it's about fighting, at best. I would say, like as you said, you know, a lot of it is about remembering a for you know forlorn time that probably never was, as far as right, you know, exactly, yeah, glory. you're right, like a false society or a false. Uh... Go ahead, go ahead. Um, if you want to remember history, this is I was um, talking about this with a friend, you know. You think about just the horrible and just the terribleness of war, and in mm -hmm. this case, and just it almost sounds funny, but the folly of war. Yeah, you put up, you know, as you said, statues to the carnage, or that make you remind you of the terribleness, remind mm -hmm. you of the bad things that happened, so you can learn from them. Not, you know, mythologize things. And to make it look better than it actually was. Right. Uh, I mean, why not? I, I, so I think in a lot of ways, the Vietnam Memorial is so powerful is because you have all these names of young men and women who lost their lives mm -hmm. in a war that didn't accomplish a thing apart from yeah. people dying on both Except, sides. You're right. Yeah. And, you know, so... That's where, like, when people talk about, you know, I think make the false equivalence of, you know, why doesn't it, you know, I don't see it. We don't have any statues of Hitler to remember when we beat the Nazis. It's like, no, like, let's compartment, well, let's, you know, put this where it belongs, which is, as you said, right. within the correct historical context. Not talking about, you know, if we're not going to glorify everything when it comes to you know, our fallen enemies in war. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, maybe, I don't want to, like, claim this and have it be untrue but i've read that uh a lot of the statues in particular of lee weren't really erected until 30 or 40 years after his death is that correct that is correct okay. yeah a lot of the a lot of the confederate statues came up um after after quote unquote the reconstruction period after um, the 1870s and uh, the united states government was no more longer um occupying the south and so you know, a lot of the people who went back into power for the local and state governments were the people who were in power before the Civil War. And, um, you know, that's where the Klan comes mm -hmm, from. Mm -hmm. It was supposedly protecting white people from, you know, the black masses. Um, this totally, you know, false threat that never was. And um, that's when the lynchings happened. Um, it also... A lot of statues uh, came up, yeah, in, in the 1920s. The 1920s were a high time of xenophobia. And, uh, you know, there were all kinds of limitations put on immigration policies. Um, um, so it was the 1920s and then the 1960s as well. Because why the civil rights movement? So, mm -hmm. yeah. I recall hearing that that was when all of a sudden the uh, Confederate battle flag started, you know, adorning the lawns of state capitals and such where... Right. You know, all of a sudden they're, you know, history buffs when, you know, the civil rights movement appears, you know, to be a thing that's going to 
it's going to happen. Mm hmm And, like, the, the battle, the, the flag itself, I've also heard, I don't know if you've heard of this, too, and I'm not, I, I shouldn't really even speak about this because I'm not positive, but the flag that's used for the Confederate flag was never really used during the Confederacy. <laughs> they had lots of other different flags. See, I, I don't want to, uh, <laughs> I guess I shouldn't say this either because I don't throw more weight behind it. I have heard similar things. I can't verify okay. it based off of anything I've read, okay. though. Yeah, I guess I... Yeah, I didn't know we were going to talk about this, so I didn't do any research <laughs> on it to, like, double-check myself. Um, but, yeah, like, the uh, the Confederate flags came up uh, as as basically a way to remind people, Black people specifically, what their history was. Which is that they are lower than white mm -hmm. men and lower than white people. Um and right. like in Alabama, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to requote Brian Stevenson here, uh, but like in Alabama, they don't have Martin Luther King Jr. Day. They have Robert E. Lee slash Martin Luther King Day. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's in Alabama. I've, um, I've so heard that. How, too. how telling is that? And then there's also a part in the state constitution that doesn't, um, uh, that still says you can still uh, racially segregate people. Uh, and it's gone up for a referendum because you can only change the state constitution uh, by a majority vote or, you know, some kind of vote yeah. um, on the on the ballot. And uh, it's been voted down like that language is still in their state constitution. Oh, it's not being enforced. Wink, wink in any capacity. No coded language mm. there, but it's still in the state constitution that you can segregate people by race. So. It's. I don't know. I just I know, don't even know. <laughs> it, it's just there's there's so much uh, there's so much wrong that it's it's even yes. hard to like get into sometimes because it is because and it's so it's so like for me in my mindset that is so blatantly wrong. Like we're not even that's not even like coded in some capacities. That's like blatant. That's clear. Like mm. that's out in the open. But no one's no one wants to talk about it, or very few people want to talk about it. Or if they do want to talk about it, you know, you're not supposed to because not all white people are racist. So therefore, it's fine, or we don't need to worry about it anymore. I don't, I don't know. It just the whole the whole thing just makes me uncomfortable. And it's like we we have these issues in this country, but to point them out, I don't think is a bad thing. <laughs> I no, think it's a and... good thing. I'm you know, it's not. And I think in a lot of ways, when you criticize the United States, um, at least among some people, you know, people I've encountered in my life and I'm sure other people have out there. But it just it seems like if you're critical about something in our society or our culture, it's not only like un-American, it's like anti-American. Yeah, which is ridiculous. Do you understand my distinction there? Yeah, which is completely ridiculous because our country was founded on change and and making things different and moving forward. We've always been evolving and adapting and, and changing. And it's like, why don't you want to change for the better? Uh, but you can't just ignore things, you know, you can't like sweep things under the rug and pretend it's not there. And this kind of leads me, I guess, to like a couple of points here I have. Um, okay. One. Um, so. I've recently, I, I, I've been familiar with his work before, but I listened to a segment with him on NPR in response to the, uh, you know, I, 
you know, in response to the Charlottesville response, which was, this is not America, this is not us. <laughs> and Jelani yeah. Cobb of The New Yorker was saying, well, unfortunately it is. And yeah, this is where, like, and I'm not trying to, like, I guess go all but Antifa or whatever here, but we just, as a country, and I don't know, again, how to rectify this, we won't we won't have this conversation when it comes to race. Either we've got people, you know, kind of, I guess, more like myself on my side, who go, this isn't an issue, let's move on, but at the same time aren't really discussing you know, the problems with it or, you know, what, like who who aren't digging deeper into why is it that it's still a thing Mm -hmm. and aren't doing it, you know, with enough zeal that it's making any difference. And then you've got people on the other side that without any hint of irony go, well, there isn't racism because we have a black, we had a black president, even Mm -hmm. though people who say that never voted for him. Yeah. And going, and this is kind of Cobb's point is, you know, as much as it hurts to say it, you know, and it, it sounds good as far as like a saying goes. And yes, we, we want to believe in the best of ourselves. That hasn't always been the case. And, right. and until we kind of get over that, it's going to keep happening. You know, the fact that um, there's a great, uh, I shouldn't say great. I sound like Trump. Um <laughs> There's a very worthwhile uh, so many watching words have been ruined. exactly <laughs> a documentary in of all places that was aired on ESPN. It's part of the Thirty for Thirty series. It's called The Ghost of Old Miss. I don't think okay. it's available on Netflix anymore, uh, but um, it's by a oh man, now I sound like an idiot because I can't remember his name. It's inspired by a uh, the the work of a very very talented writer who's actually a Mississippi native, and. Um, there's just some of his prose in there is amazing, but he, you know, he talks about this riot that happened at the University of Mississippi over the admission of a black man in the 1960s, and you like you watch you know, the way that the governor spoke about it, and you're like, okay, oh gosh, what he's saying is certainly more racist than what we see now, with the exception of maybe the guy I just talked about, yeah, but. You know, this stuff is still here. People are still going nuts over, mm-hmm. you know, this perception that somehow their rights are being reduced because the rights of other races or people that don't look like them are mm-hmm. you know, possibly, maybe, they, or at least we're talking about making sure that they're the same. Right. And, you know, it's bad on all sides that we're still having this, well, <laughs> I guess we're still not having this conversation. These things keep happening. Yeah. We're going... How is this happening? Um, but, you know, moving on from there, and I think maybe uh, we'll start to try and wind down from here, but sure. your point about history is just, it's excellent because, you know, one of the first things that I learned when I took a, you know, I think it was, I can't remember what the class was. It was a freshman level history course at UNC where the teacher talks about the difference between, you know, History, mythology, and legend. Mm. And mm. so much of what we learn, at least what I learned in you know, growing up in fairly decent public schools in Colorado, is mythology. Some of it's bordering yes. on legend, but a lot of it's yep. mythology. Oh, and yeah, completely. You get to college and you're going, mm-hmm. the hell is this? 
and you learn like all this yeah. stuff where, yeah, this guy did this, but he also did this. And it's not trying to negate anything anybody has done. In fact, what I've, I found it makes it more interesting because. Yes. Yeah. The imperfections of people of the <laughs> past. Yes. And it, us, our, our, us too. If you were to watch like a documentary, you're going, I'm an asshole compared to people like, you know, <laughs> 60 years ago. Like, what the hell's wrong with me? Like, you know, they were all, you know, of Puritan virtue and never did anything wrong and, you know, worked hard. And here I am, uh, you know, <laughs> cursing on a podcast and stuff like that. And, yeah. like, then you learn, no, everyone has their vices. Everyone does weird things. We, When my uh, mom, my stepdad, and my aunt and uncle were out here a few years ago, we did the Underground Seattle tour, which I'd recommend to anybody. Um, and then we, uh, should I say that we are, we will accept sponsors from the right people, but they, we're not sponsored by anybody. Um, <laughs> because it's so cool. Like you're, you're learning about, you know, not just like people think about, oh, this is the, uh, you know, dark history of Seattle. You're learning about the real history that's not dressed up by, people that want to make you believe that everything was rosy and like you know, rose colored mm -hmm. glasses, I guess it's a better term. Yeah. And so the fact that like any frontier town for a while, Seattle had a lot of hookers. Uh, yeah. And that's you know, not saying anything bad about hookers. It's just, it's how it is. And that, uh, you know, one of the founding fathers of Seattle was a doctor with a drinking problem. And mm. what I thought was great about not only just the whole tour, but after you get done, our tour guide, who I don't remember his name, but was certainly well caffeinated, was saying how he <laughs> finds that the best part of history are like the little details, the, the things that, you know, are oftentimes a little dirty, but just kind of make people stick out. And I, I totally agree with that. It's just, that's the best part of history is finding out that people throughout the ages are not too dissimilar from us as much as technology may have changed we're still mm -hmm. basically the same people yep and i to go off of that as someone who enjoys research and enjoys history whole people of the past are so different and they were in a lot of ways but looking at especially in the last like in the modern era since photography it blows my mind how much people still look the same Mm -hmm. we're taller and we're styled differently but there's been so many times where you look at an old photograph it's like yeah i saw a guy that looked like that at the at the restaurant last night you know mm -hmm. it's so we are the same in a lot of ways even if we speak differently or dress differently and make different choices and certainly believe different things and history and early public education in america was history itself was used as a tool of nationalism, as a way to raise up little patriots. And I think that's still how it is in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But I don't think looking at the little gritty details or looking at the big mistakes that the United States has made makes you any less of a patriot. I think in a lot of ways, most people in America probably believe in the ideals. But shouldn't we want to strive to actually fulfill those ideals? It's never going to happen. It's not always, you can't be perfect. Um, but what's wrong with recognizing where we can improve? Exactly. That was my point. I was going to say is 
people aren't, you know, historians aren't looking up things that have happened in the past to, you know, say America sucks. They're looking at things in the past mm-hmm. to go, that wasn't good. Let's not do that again. Let's be better going forward. And I think, yeah, you know, it has to be look, looked at through that point or perspective where we're not trying to shit on the past for the sake of shitting on the past. We're trying to make things better. If anything, you know, learning from the stuff and trying to figure out better ways is patriotic as opposed to just going, things were great yeah. before. Let's do that. <laughs> Very well put. Well, I think uh, it's probably about time for us to wrap this up. Thank you for talking to I was going to say, I think, we, I think we found like a nice little stopping point. So. We did. <laughs> I, I was, uh, <laughs> was worried that we may have gone a bit too down the rabbit hole as far as like Charlottesville and be a bit too depressing, but uh, I think we found a way out. Well, good. Good. Yay. That That's that's the goal, right? Yes. <laughs> Get out of the hole you just dug. 